Section 113 of Italy, France, Spain, and Portugal. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Hypatia. The World Story, Volume 5. Italy, France, Spain, and Portugal. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 113. Captain Cuellar of the Armada and his Troubles. 1588 by james anthony fraude in fifteen eighty eight philip the second sent out after unprecedented preparations a fleet or armada to conquer england and bring her back to the roman catholic church he was so sure of its success that he called it the invincible armada nevertheless by english seamanship aided by the winds and the waves a large part of it was destroyed the ships which remained were driven to the north, and the Spaniards hoped that by sailing around Ireland they might make their way home. Terrible storms arose, and many of the vessels were wrecked on the coast of Ireland. Only half of the invincible Armada ever returned to Spain. The following extract is taken, in substance, from a letter which Captain Cuellar sent to Philip II. The Editor the scene of the greatest destruction among the ships of the armada was sligo bay it is easy to see why the coast on the mayo side of it trends away seventy miles to the west as far as ackle and clare islands and ships embayed there in heavy south-westerly weather had no chance of escape on one beach five miles in length sir geoffrey fenton counted eleven hundred dead bodies and the country people told him the like was to be seen in other places. Sir William Fitzwilliam saw broken timber from the wrecks lying between Sligo and Ballyshannon, sufficient to have built five of the largest ships in the world, besides masts and spars and cordage, and boats bottom uppermost. Among the vessels which went ashore at this spot to form part of the room which Fitzwilliam was looking upon was a galleon belonging to the Levantine squadron, commanded by Don Martin de Aranda. Don Martin, after an ineffectual struggle to double Ackle Island, had fallen off before the wind and had anchored in Sligo Bay, in a heavy sea with two other galleons. There they lay for four days, from the 1st to the 5th of September, when the gale rising their cables parted, and all three drove on shore on a sandy beach among the rocks. Nowhere in the world does the sea break more violently than on that cruel, shelterless shore. Two of the galleons went to pieces in an hour. The soldiers and sailors, too weak to struggle, were most of them rolled in the surf till they were dead, and then washed up upon the shingle. Gentlemen and servants, nobles and common seamen, shared the same fate. Cuellar's ship had broken in two, but the forecastle held a little longer together than the rest, and Cuellar, clinging to it, watched his comrades being swept away and destroyed before his eyes. The wild Irish were down in hundreds, stripping the bodies. Those who had come on shore with life in them fared no better. Some were knocked on the head, others had their clothes torn off and left naked to perish of cold. Don Diego Enriquez, a high-born patrician, passed with the conde de villafranca and sixty-five others into his ship's tender carrying bags of ducats and jewels they went below and fastened down the hatchways hoping to be rolled alive on land a huge wave turned the tender bottom upward 
and all who were in it were smothered. As the tide went back, the Irish came with their axes, and broke a hole open in search of plunder, while Cuella looked on, speculating how soon the same fate would be his own, and seeing the corpses of his comrades dragged out, stripped naked, and left to the wolves. His own turn came at last. He held on to the wreck till it was swept away, and he found himself in the water with a brother officer who had stuffed his pockets full of gold. He could not swim, but he caught a scuttle-board as it floated by him and climbed up upon it. His companion tried to follow, but he was washed off and drowned. Koya, a few minutes later, was tossed ashore, his leg badly cut by a blow from a spar in the surf. Drenched and bleeding as he was, he looked a miserable figure. The Irish, who were plundering the better dress of the bodies, took no notice of him. He crawled along till he found a number of his own countrymen, who had been left with nothing but life, bare to their skins, and huddled together for warmth. Cuella, who had still his clothes, though of course drenched, lay down among some rushes. A gentleman, worse off than he, for he was entirely naked, threw himself at his side, too spent to speak. Two Irishmen came by with axes, who, to Cuella's surprise, cut some bushes, which they threw over them for a covering, and went on to join in the pillage on the shore. Cuella, half dead from cold and hunger, fell asleep. He was woke by a troop of English horsemen galloping by for a share in the spoil. He called his comrade, but found him dead, while all around the crows and wolves were busy over the naked carcasses. Something like a monastery was visible not far off. Cuella limped along till he reached it. He found it deserted. The roof of the chapel had been lately burned. The images of the saints lay tumbled on the ground. In the nave, twelve Spaniards were hanging from the rafters. The monks had fled to the mountains. Sick at the ghastly spectacle, he crept along a path through a wood, when he came upon an old woman who was hiding her cattle from the English. Her cabin was not far distant, but she made signs to him to keep off, as there were enemies in occupation there. Wandering hopelessly on, he fell in with two of his countrymen, naked and shivering. They were all famished, and they went back together to the sea, hoping to find some fragments of provisions washed on land. On the way they came on the body of Don Enriquez, and stopped to scrape a hole in the sand and bury it. While they were thus employed, a party of Irish came up, who pointed to a cluster of cabins, and intimated that if they went there, they would be taken care of. Cuella was dead lame. His companions left him. At the first cottage which he reached, there was an old Irish savage, an Englishman, a Frenchman, and a girl. The Englishman struck at him with a knife, and gave him a second wound. They stripped him to his shirt, took a gold chain from him, which they found concealed under it, and a purse of ducats. They would have left him and Queros, like the rest, without a rag upon him, had not the girl interposed, who affected to be a Christian, though she was no more a Christian than Mohammed. The Frenchman proved to be an old sailor who had fought at Terceda. In him the Spanish captain found some human kindness, for he bound up his leg for him and gave him some oat cakes with butter and milk. The Frenchman then pointed to a ridge of distant mountains. There, he said, was the country of the O'Rourke, a great chief, who was a friend of the King of Spain. 
O'Rourke would take care of him. Many of his comrades had already gone thither for protection. With his strength something restored by the food, Cuellar crawled along, stick in hand. At night he stopped at a hut where there was a lad who could speak Latin. This boy talked with him, gave him supper and a bundle of straw to sleep upon. About midnight the boy's father and brother came in, loaded with plunder from the wrecks. They too did him no hurt, and sent him forward in the morning with a pony and a guide. English soldiers were about, sent, as he conjectured, probably with truth, to kill all the Spaniards that they could fall in with. The first party that he met did not see him. With the second he was less fortunate. His guide saved his life by some means which Cuellar did not understand, but they beat him and took his shirt from him, the last of his garments that had been left. The boy and pony went off, and he thought then that the end was come, and prayed God to finish him and take him to his mercy. Forlorn as he was, however, he rallied his courage, picked up a piece of old matting, and with this and some plaited ferns made a shift to cover himself. Thus costumed, he went on to a hamlet at the side of a lake. The hovels of which it consisted were all empty. He entered the best-looking of them, found some faggots of oat straw, and was looking about for a place to sleep among them, when three naked figures sprang suddenly up. He took them for devils, and in his extraordinary dress they thought the same of him. But they proved to have belonged to the wrecked galleons, one of them a naval officer, the other two soldiers. They explained mutually who they were, and then buried themselves in the oat sheaves and slept. They remained there for warmth and concealment all the next day. At night, having wrapped themselves in straw, they walked on till they reached the dominions of the chief to whom they had been directed. O'Rourke himself was absent, fighting the English, but his wife took them in, fed them, and allowed them to stay. As a particular favour, she bestowed an old cloak upon Cuellar, which he found, however, to be swarming with lice. The hospitality was not excessive. A report reached him that a Spanish ship had put into Killybeg's harbour, was refitting for sea, and was about to sail. He hurried down to join her, but she was gone. He learned afterwards that she had been wrecked, and that all on board had perished. He was now like a hunted wolf. The English deputy had issues ordered that every Spaniard in the country must be given up to the government. The Irish did not betray Cuellar, but they did not care to risk their necks by giving him shelter, and he wandered about through the winter in Sligo and Donegal, meeting with many strange adventures. His first friend was a poor priest, who was performing his functions among the Irish, in spite of the law, disguised as a layman. From this man he met with help. He worked next as a journeyman with a blacksmith, whose wife was a brute. The priest delivered him from these people and carried him to a castle, which, from the description, appears to have been on Lao Urn, and here for the first time he met with hearty hospitality, in the Irish understanding of the term. The owner of the castle was a gentleman. He recognised an ally in every enemy of England. He took Cuellar into his troop of retainers, and dressed him in the saffron mantle of the Irish gallow-glass. For some weeks he was now permitted to rest and recover himself. The Lord Deputy was alarmed at the number of fugitives who were said to be surviving. As the orders to surrender them had not been attended to, he collected a force in Dublin, and went in person into the West to enforce obedience. 
where his entertainer had been especially menaced, and had to tell his guests that he could help them no further. He must leave his castle and retreat himself with his family into the mountains, and the Spaniards must take care of themselves. Cuellar calls the castle Manglana. Local antiquaries may be able to identify the spot. It stood on a promontory projecting into a long, deep and broad lake, and was covered on the land side by a swamp. It could not be taken without boats or artillery, and the Spaniards offered to remain and defend it, if the chief would leave them a few muskets and powder, with food for a couple of months. There were nine of them. The chief agreed, and let them have what they wanted, and, unless Cuella lies, he and his friends held Manglana for a fortnight, against the force of eighteen hundred English, when God came to their help by sending such weather that the enemy could not any longer keep the field. The chief, finding the value of such auxiliaries, wished to keep them permanently at his side, and often Cuella his sister for a wife. Cuella, however, was longing for home. He supposed that if he could reach Scotland, he could cross easily from thence to Flanders. One night after Christmas he slipped away, and made for Antrim, travelling, seemingly, only in the dark and hiding during the day. He was in constant danger, as the tracks were watched, and suspected persons were seized and searched. He got as far as the giant's causeway. There he heard particulars of the wreck of the ship which he had tried to join at Killebegs. It was a galleass, with Alonso de Laiva on board, and two or three hundred others with him. They were all dead, and Cuella saw the relics of them which the people had collected on the shore. Alonso de Leiva was the best loved of all the Spaniards in the fleet, and the sight of the spot where he had perished was a fresh distress. He was afraid to approach a port, lest he should be seized and hanged. For six weeks he was hid away by some women, and after that by a bishop who was a good Christian, though dressed like a savage. This bishop had a dozen Spaniards with him, fed, clothed, and said mass for them, and at last found a boat to carry them across the channel. They went, and after three days' struggle with the sea, contrived to land in Argyleshire. They had been led to hope for help from James. Quasia says that they were entirely mistaken. James never gave them a bawbee, and would have handed them over to the English if he had not been afraid of the resentment of the Scotch Catholic nobles. The Calvinist lowlanders showed them scanty hospitality. The Prince of Parma was informed of their condition, and agreed with a Flemish merchant to bring over to him all the Spaniards, now numerous, who were on Scotch soil, at five ducats a head. Even yet misfortune had not tired of persecuting them, in their passage they were chased and fired upon by a Dutch frigate. They had to run ashore, where they were intercepted by the Hollanders, and all but Cuella and two of his companions were killed. So ends the Spanish captain's story. End of section 113 This recording is in the public domain.